The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Mike, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me there is Tone Vase. So, Tone, you and I have interacted a little bit in the past, but I don't know too much about you. So, introduce yourself to the audience and to me. Who are you? What's your background? How'd you get involved and interested in financial markets? And how'd you gravitate towards Bitcoin? Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for the invite, Mike. Hopefully, this goes well and we can do these more often as we host spaces as well. Okay. So, my name is Tone Vase. I, what got me into finance? So, I actually started out studying geology. And since I wasn't a very good geologist, I kept taking math courses because I always found those to be easy and uh, I ended up with a math degree and uh, alongside my geology degree, ended up being a teacher for a little bit, really didn't like it and wanted to make some money. So I went and got a master's in financial engineering and then got a job on Wall Street as um, like a quantitative analyst. And that first job was at Bear Stearns and we were building risk models. Didn't really work out for Bear Stearns very well. But we're building the risk models for hedge funds, which really needed our services in 2008 when everything was collapsing. And I was at Bear Stearns during the collapse. From there, I transitioned to JP Morgan, also a company called MSCI. After that, you might have heard of it. They do a lot of the indices stuff. My final job was at a company called Axioma. And again, most of my career on Wall Street for about 10 years was building risk models. My passion, however, all throughout my Wall Street career was actually trading. So I was trading on the side on my own. It was a lot more difficult to do in JP Morgan and Bear Stearns because I had a lot of proprietary information. So there was lots of restrictions. In my last company, there weren't any restrictions because the risk models we were building, we were giving to our clients. So I didn't have any proprietary data, like a bunch of hedge fund positions and what they're holding, like I did at Bear Stearns and other companies. And around 2015, I ended up quitting that job early 2015, to be a trader, basically. But I, by that time, I already had discovered Bitcoin, found it super interesting. And my other passion has always been public speaking and educating. Hence, I started out as a teacher. I just wanted to make some money doing it. And around that same time, when I quit to just be an at-home trader, I also started writing articles about Bitcoin, doing public speaking about Bitcoin at conferences, because I've already been in a space for a while. There wasn't much professionalism in that space. So it was easy for me to get speaking gigs with my Wall Street experience. That turned into a a YouTube channel and a bunch of interviews because more people wanted to hear what I had to say. Eventually, I started organizing my own events. One is called Unconfiscatable, which is specific about Bitcoin. And the other is Financial Summit, uh, which is more for all kinds of trading and investing. 
So I still follow traditional markets. I cover traditional markets all the time. But Bitcoin is the only asset in the crypto space that I find super interesting, super innovative. And I think it has a very bright future. All right. So a lot of direction I want to go based on your career history. The fact that you have such experience when it comes to developing risk models, I think, is interesting. The problem you and I both know is that you know, risk is arguably hard to model, right? Because there's always new variables that seemingly come out of place. The hedge fund community and banking community loves to look at value risk, VAR type models, which don't really follow the sort of kurtosis nature of markets. Exactly what is it that uh, VAR is, is exactly what I was doing for like the first seven years of that career. It was all VAR and stress testing. What is it that, just from that experience in your career, what is it that Wall Street gets wrong about how it perceives risk and modeling of risk? And, and where I'm going with that is, you know, it seems to me that you need to have some justification for risk that's taken, and that results in misaligned incentives in terms of understanding what real risk is. Yeah, really good question. So I'm not going to say they get anything wrong, but what you have to realize is, is that when you're analyzing risk, and I can explain the way we analyze risk, is there's a little disclaimer that always says under normal market conditions. And when shit hits the fan, it's not considered normal market conditions. So where is it useful and where is it not useful? So the two types of risks that we were analyzing back at Bear Stearns, then JP Morgan, then MSCI was a bit of a transition because models like different risk companies were merging into one, was the VAR model basically runs a simulation on like a thousand portfolios. They like your portfolio, they run a simulation a thousand times, and then they look at, okay, with 95% confidence, a few standard deviations. What is the worst case scenario for your portfolio, but with 95% confidence? It's those last 5% is the real outlier. And where is it helpful? So one of the models that we were doing is that we would convince hedge funds to show us their positions on a month-end basis. So we had like 400 hedge funds, and I literally had their positions in our database, what they were holding at the end of the month. So they would give us the data once a month. And we would analyze the risk of their, of their portfolio, and we would provide the risk analysis of that portfolio to the investors of the hedge fund. So like the fund of funds and the pension funds, and the hedge fund also wanted to see it. Most hedge funds have their own internal risk stuff. Some of the smaller ones do not. So they were actually outsourcing it to us because if you have you know, your risk manager at the firm, he may not know, you know how risky each individual trader under their, in their fund could be taken on these positions. And at least it gives them this overview as to what's going on. As an example, if you, are, if, if you have a trader that's holding, let's say, 100 different positions, but three of those positions are, he managed to sell like three call options. Now, the risk on the three call options could actually be unlimited. And if he didn't hedge it, that can still skew your 95% confidence level. And then someone, you know, his manager can see that, whoa, why is this guy's portfolio way more risky than my other traders? And then you can dig in on that and say, oh, because he decided to buy, sell a couple of calls and didn't hedge them at all. And they technically have unlimited risk. So you can see that. And the other part is stress testing. And since I was there in 2008, and JP Morgan, I got to make a bunch of these trust tests. So what we would do is we would replicate your portfolio if, let's say, the dot-com crash happened again. 
or the 2008 crisis happened again, or the 1987 crash happened again. So we would replicate all those parameters and apply them to your portfolio if that event is to repeat. Now, obviously, no historical event will repeat, but we had a list of like 20, 25 of them. And again, you can see a snapshot of your traders or your overall fund and how it would perform under the same conditions as a prior financial event, good or bad, or like if a 9-11 was to happen again, how would your portfolio perform? I've got to assume a big part of that analysis and looking at hedge funds and just look at risk in general across any market is how much leverage is deployed. Yes, how much leverage is deployed. And also, again, it's useful statistic on like, are you on the one side of the market, right? It's like all of a sudden, are you short across the board or you're way overweight on tech stocks? And an investor in a hedge fund would really want to see that information without us disclosing to them their underlying positions. But of course, when a 2008 happens, you know, most of hedge funds failed because again, black swan events are impossible to model. Yeah, no, exactly right. And I always go back to uh, using the driving analogy, you know, a black swan, an event is a mile marker. Nobody knows the exact mile marker. One could, might crash their car, right? But you do know the conditions. You know when it's raining, you need to slow down. And leverage is basically, you know, pedal to the metal, you know, speed up independent of the rain around you. The hedge fund community obviously has had a hard time post-GFC, right? It's been hard to beat the S&P, beat passive beta, because it's been the only game in town, as a lot of other asset allocation strategies have worked. And as active anomalies, you can argue, got squashed by Fed policy. I'm just curious, Just we'll get into Bitcoin, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the state of, let's call it anomalies, if we're in a period now where there will be more interesting tactical opportunities to position, not just into Bitcoin, but into other parts of the marketplace, because for the last decade, it's been so abnormal favoring the vanguards of the world. Just given that you worked a lot with hedge funds, the hedge funds have had such a hard time. Uh, do you think there's a cycle that's coming forward, right, where, you know, the kind of active hedge fund community makes a comeback? Well, I haven't really been paying attention, like which hedge fund has have done well or not done well. But I can say that over the last, I would say, at least three to four years, I mean, pending the whole lockdown thing was a huge wrench in the market. That was weird. But since the election of Trump, basically going back all the way to 2016, I have been incredibly bullish on the stock market overall. I remain bullish on the stock market overall. I thought it would do well. I am incredibly bearish on government bonds. I expected the rates to start going up eventually. And even if the rates didn't go up, I expect confidence in government bonds, especially the West government bonds in the West, US, Europe, Australia, Canada. I expected uh, a huge loss of confidence there. And as the loss of confidence grows, obviously rates have to go up to compensate for people's lack of confidence. Now, of course, I didn't anticipate that China was going to stop buying US bonds and actually start selling them. Russia would completely deleverage and not touch, completely remove all exposure to have to the United States. I mean, I could not have seen these things coming in 2017, 18, 19, that's what ended up happening. Now, I don't actually run a hedge fund, so I'm not going to say I profited greatly from these views, but anyone that's been watching my YouTube channel for the last five, seven years would know that these were the views that I had. Now, hedge funds, I'm sure some of them will, could have done okay. Like Bitcoin has been another asset that I've been bullish on for a while. And a few hedge funds that took advantage of that. You know, it goes through its ups and downs, but it goes up a little more than it goes down over the last decade. 
So it's hard to say why hedge funds have not been able to outperform the S&P, but it's because the S&P has been on an incredible upwards run. And bonds, on the other hand, have not been. So any hedge fund that didn't see this huge run up in stocks over the last seven, eight years and caution on the government bond market, yeah, they would have had a tough time beating the S&P. So you have things on incredible runs, of course, that's a good transition to Bitcoin itself. I mean, uh, one of the most incredible stories ever in the investment investment history is what's happened uh, since Bitcoin uh, was out there and, and the market cap increased since then. Set the stage for the audience in terms of uh, the types of risks that you categorize Bitcoin under, right? So I'm going to argue that Bitcoin, the real value, at least from my vantage point around Bitcoin, is it, it's a way of countering counterparty risk. But it still has other risks attached to it that th- does not counter, that maybe narratives like inflation hedge, I'd argue, is not really a valid argument, nor is store value. We can get into that. But define the types of risks that Bitcoin hedges against from your view and what are the risks to Bitcoin? So we'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Lately, Bitcoin has been fairly correlated with the stock market. And Bitcoin basically started just at the end of the financial crisis. So it's been under some unprecedented run up along with the stock market's unprecedented run up. So it's hard to say that, I mean, we'll see what happens if the stock market actually falters and if Bitcoin is going to be able to, you know, go up in spite of that. So we're going to find out. But I see Bitcoin as a private asset. There's two types of assets. There's private assets and there's public assets. Now, public assets is things like government bonds. Private assets are assets like gold, assets like the stock market, because these are private companies. It's an investment in the private industry, not the government industry, even though you know they are intertwined a little bit. And we call them public companies. But in reality, when you invest in the stock market, you're investing in the private sector. And Bitcoin is another one of these private assets, which is a lot more private than all the others, because you can have self-custody in an easier way than even gold. And when you have gold and you store it in your house, in your own safe, that's probably the best way to store it. But it's still subject to someone can rob your house and just take the safe. If the government shows up, they could confiscate that gold and take the safe. To me, what makes Bitcoin super unique, and it's the one piece of risk that no other asset in the world can compete with, is the concept of unconfiscatability. Because Bitcoin is an asset of value that you can actually store in your head. So a lot of people at first were scared of Bitcoin because it doesn't have a physical component to it. But that is what gives it this unconfiscatable property, which humans have never had. And to me, that is the most important property. So when you say that, I okay, so I agree with you that Bitcoin is not really an inflation risk. It is for some countries, not for us in the West. 
It's definitely an inflation risk for the Turkey people in Turkey, people in Venezuela, people in Zimbabwe, and several other countries that could be hitting hyperinflation levels. For those using the dollar, it's not that much of an inflation risk on a longer term time scale. It is, but not on you know several year time scale. But when it comes to store of value, it's two types of store of value, right? One is your purchasing power store of value. And the other is the concept of unconfiscatability. So while it may go up and down in price, so if you're in a bit of a bear market, uh, it doesn't buy you as many goods and services. But when I go to sleep at night, I know Bitcoin is the one asset that when I wake up, I'm still going to own. Because for all I know, I wake up tomorrow and my bank account is frozen because I donated $20 to a Canadian trucker. Yeah, no, I, and I don't disagree with that sort of mindset. The self-custody thing is always the, the part that, to me, is tricky from sort of a, a longer term, you know, uh, viewpoint of Bitcoin taking over the world. Because the reality is self-custody is inconvenient. Right? I mean, there's a reason why people want Bitcoin ETFs, because... They don't have to worry about or they don't want to worry about remembering, you know, effectively a password, right, as far as accessing those keys. How do you get to a place where people that are interested in Bitcoin bypass the wrappers that inevitably are coming down the pipeline to track Bitcoin? Because I think this is where it gets to be pretty muddy. Yeah, it is definitely a challenge getting people to self-custody Bitcoin because it does take a lot of responsibility. But... I mean, look, humans evolved to take on more responsibility. Driving a car is a different type of risk than riding a horse. Same thing with flying airplanes. And, you know, people do take on these challenges. Technology started making our life easier. When I was a kid, I used to memorize, I had, you know, at least 20 phone numbers memorized in my head. Today, I barely remember three, one of which is my own, hopefully. And technology has made things easier and let us rely on other things. Potentially, that could change. It really depends on the government and which direction they go. I've switched my email a long time ago to an encrypted email service so that I know that neither the email provider nor a subpoena can read the inside of my email unless I allow for that. The downside to that is if I forget my email passport, password, I lose my email. A lot of us are using those kinds of email services now. It's a little less risky when doing it for your email than doing it for your life savings. But again, you have to weigh the risk versus the reward. And when enough people realize what kind of danger they are in and how the government can potentially stop them from using their legally earned money, they will start taking on more of a responsibility. But it's the job of people like myself and others to constantly educate people on the importance of self-custodying their financial future. But it's not easy. Yeah, it's just interesting that, that there's so much hype around, you know, Bitcoin ETF coming down the pipeline. And there's value to that in terms of expanding the audience, seeing people more aware of it. But I go back to, it, it kind of goes against the idea of self-custody and presents a whole different kind of counterparty risk just from the wrapper itself, I'd argue. Sure. And, and look, here's one more thing that I really like about Bitcoin, right? It is trying to solve many, many problems all at once. And when you focus on a single one of them, and it may not be achieving the goal, you have to step back and realize, but it's solving multiple problems at once. So because of Bitcoin's finite supply, and we can debate whether that's a good economic model or not, it's kind of designed to go up in value as the demand and the use case for it 
rises for people because there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin. So as long as people find it useful, it has to go up by default because there's only so few to go around. So it tries to like give people this notion that printing all this money is bad. Inflation is bad. Okay. Now it's also trying to create a medium of exchange and that required a lot of development and the lightning network. So you can use it for small transactions. Is Bitcoin all that private? Not really, but I think privacy is a secondary element. I think it's more important that your wealth is unconfiscatable. No one else can freeze it. You can send it to anyone in the world, even if they know you're doing it. Because they can't stop you from doing it, it's very powerful, even if it's not private. And there are ways to make private Bitcoin transactions. You will have to, you know, have a little bit of a, a technological learning curve. You can use the liquid side chain. Maybe one day there will be changes to the protocol to make it private. That comes with its own dangers. So I'll admit that it's not the most private thing in the world, but privacy isn't necessarily the most important thing. The most important thing is how many people are actually adopting it and using it. We were in one country starting to adopt it. It's trying to solve that problem. It's also, you know, trying to teach people about being more responsible and understanding the monetary culture. So because it's trying to solve all these problems at once, focusing on just one of them, you can say, well, it's not penetrating all that greatly. But when you look at it overall and what it's done in the last 10 years, and I'm focusing on just the last 10 years, I'm not going to pick on the first three years of Bitcoin's existence, you know. But in the last 10 years, especially in the last like six or seven years, no one can say they haven't heard of it and there weren't enough resources to really try and understand it. But having said that, I hate everything else that's in the crypto space. So I'm only a Bitcoin. I'm one of those Bitcoin maxis, as people like to say. So earlier you mentioned that, you know, in the beginning, it was you know, certainly easier to be a speaker because you had the professional background you come across and are obviously very knowledgeable and professional in your demeanor. We saw a lot of non-professional behavior uh, across the board, right? And these things go through cycles. And it doesn't just happen to Bitcoin. It happens in all asset classes. In, in uh, you see it with the, I mean, you saw them with the meme stocks. I think you're seeing it with NVIDIA now. And oftentimes it gets to be more than just sort of professionalism. It gets to be, you know, personal in the way that people frame things. Do you get a sense that the institutional entrenchment, which may be starting in earnest, depending upon what the SEC decides, that we're going to see sort of a, a new era of, broader, more professionalism, less of this sort of, you know, rocket ship meme type stuff uh, when it comes to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general? Or is that just going to come with the territory no matter what? Look, I do think more professionalism is going to set in. It's already been setting in. Now, that could be bad. That could be good. I'm leaning towards good. But once again, one of the main aspects of Bitcoin is its counter- government control nature. So when professionals like BlackRock are coming in, I don't really trust a company like BlackRock. So it really depends on the person. So yes, they are more professional when it comes to finance. Now, it doesn't mean that the things in the Bitcoin space or in the crypto space that they would do, I would be on board with. Like I may disagree with how they want to do it. Like, I'm sure they're going to want more control. They're going to, many professionals come in and they think that just because they're important and they're wealthy and they have influence, that they can somehow change the code of Bitcoin to do what they think is best. And that's where, you know, the Bitcoin ecosystem will end up proving them wrong. But as far as 
people with experience and coming in and building stuff. Yeah, that's already been happening for a little while. And there's always a smarter developer out there somewhere. They just have to believe in this new aspect of technology, specifically financial technology, and be willing to build on it or for it. I've had a few people talk about Bitcoin in the last several months. And one dynamic, which I think is interesting, is that Bitcoin doesn't sort of have a classic lobbyist, right? Because it's decentralized and because no one owns it. So it's hard to sort of have a yeah, some real, you know, concentrated big players to advocate for it from a legal perspective. Any interesting thoughts maybe on your end as far as how policymakers can get more tuned in on Bitcoin when there really isn't sort of a centralized group pushing for it on the government level? Not really. I mean, they, again, this is something that just has to evolve as it goes. This goes to that decentralized nature of Bitcoin. And my goal has always been to educate policymakers. Not that I make that my primary goal by any means, but to me, it's all about the information, right? We can agree or disagree with our regulators and the people making the rules. Uh, I think Gary Gensler has the most knowledge about Bitcoin in the crypto space than any other government employee possibly in the world. Now, whether he acts in a way that I agree with or other people in the Bitcoin space agree with is certainly debatable, right? But it all starts with, do you understand it? And the most frustrating thing is policymakers trying to make laws and regulations on something they don't actually understand. I could, like, I'd rather, like, if they're going to create policy that's anti-Bitcoin, but they actually fully understand Bitcoin, all right, we will just have to fight them through the digital space and people yeah, may have to move to El Salvador and build stuff there because over there it's accepted. And in the U.S., let's say it may not be accepted, right? But in order for you to make the proper decision on what to do next, you need to know that those making rules and regulations actually understand uh, the underlying concept. And when they don't, that's tricky because, well, what happens when they do understand it? Is their policy going to change? And that creates a lot more uncertainty than uh, a bad piece of regulation after you know that the person fully understands it. So that's the goal. The goal is to educate them properly, and then we'll see what happens, and we'll have to react to that. Yeah, and actually, I'm going to say that kind of goes back to the lobbyist point. I mean, the reality is a lot of laws you know, are also written by lobbyists, right? So if you don't have a a clear lobbyist on the Bitcoin side, well, you can argue on the one hand that's actually a good thing from a lawmaker perspective because there's no sort of outside force that has its own agenda. On the other hand, lobbyists, the reality is probably know a lot more about what they're lobbying for. So there's a bit of an information and incentive asymmetry there. Just to reset the room for the remaining minutes, everybody please make sure you follow Tone Vase here on X and follow him on his YouTube channel as well. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, make sure you follow me, check your DMs, and I will prompt you when the time is right. And as always, this will be a podcast under Lead Lag Live on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. So I named this space Bitcoin Will Diverge because it's something I've posted out a few times in the last month or so related to this idea that if we have a credit event, I think Bitcoin just performance-wise could act differently than it has in prior tail events. And I really say that purely from the standpoint of watching what happened in March, when for a brief moment as the regional bank dynamic was playing out, 
Bitcoin did diverge. It didn't act like a risk on asset. It actually went up as stocks were going down as, you know, there was a little bit of a mini crisis and scare with the banking system. Made perfect sense, right? I mean, Bitcoin came out of the 08 crisis, you know, which is a banking crisis. So makes sense that there would be some movement there. How do you think about the correlation and how it could evolve? Not necessarily change, but evolve. You mentioned earlier it correlated to equities, you know, this year, but there are some of these momentary glimpses where it could look very different. So do you think we are maybe entering a phase where it's going to keep on staying the risk-on, levered liquidity way of playing equities? Or you know, is it maybe shifting to more of an alternative asset? Yeah, great question. So let's back up a little bit. I'm going to back up to the 2008 crisis and I'm going to compare that to the COVID lockdowns. So when the 2008 crisis was happening, what a lot of people found surprising, and this goes back to the gold bugs, is that gold also crashed 33%. So as the stock market crashed 50%, gold crashed 33% around the same time. Now, gold recovered faster, and then gold ended up making a brand new high in 2011. It recently reached up high once again. But uh, why did gold crash in the middle of a financial crash? And when you have horrendous conditions, when the stock market, especially the financial sector, crashes very quickly, People end up losing their jobs. They could end up losing liquidity and the credit for their businesses. Like everybody suffers. A lot of people said the bank should not have been bailed out back in 2009. But on the flip side, imagine what would happen if all the banks failed and all businesses potentially could fail as well, because how are they going to survive during those few months? They don't have any credit. They can't pay their employees. So everything could have imploded. And that is why gold also crashed. Because at that point of uncertainty, and what if you just lost your job, but you happen to have some gold or jewelry, you're selling that in order to feed your family. Now, during the COVID situation in 2020, same thing. The stock market crashed super quickly and Bitcoin crashed alongside of it, right? Because if suddenly you run out of money, but you happen to have some Bitcoin, again, you got to feed your family. But where Bitcoin does really well is... When there was fear, like what happened with the Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other banks, where it's not a catastrophic crash of the banking system, but you can see it and you can think about it rationally. And you're like, wow, these banks are starting to fall down. What is my alternative? Maybe I should hold on to a little bit of Bitcoin. And this is where Bitcoin does incredibly well and decorrelates from the market, where the market goes down a little bit, especially when there's fear over the financial sector, and people have time to rationally think and consider Bitcoin as an alternative. Now, my forward view is that I'm not really expecting a 1929-style stock market crash. So I could be wrong on this, but I am anticipating new all-time highs for the stock market. And maybe not this year, but perhaps next year, uh, the election will, you know, will determine quite a bit whether I remain super bullish on the stock market for the next four years or not. Uh, but for now, I'm still bullish in the stock market. And I think the overall correlation of Bitcoin with the stock market will remain. And Bitcoin has its own cycles. It has its own four-year cycle because of the halving. It has its bull and bear cycles when FOMO sets in and everyone and the price is going higher, everyone wants to buy in. I mean, you've been in markets long enough to know that it's very hard to predict that exponential top. I remember like in several occasions where you're like, okay, this has to be the top. And then all of a sudden, the asset still doubles in price. This happened like in the NASDAQ. This even happened in Bitcoin in 2017, where I called the top in Bitcoin at $7,500. And the real top was at 19000 
And people are like, hey, look how wrong you were. You called the top at seven and a half, but it went to 19. And my answer was, yeah, but I've been bullish on Bitcoin for like a year and a half and I missed the top like three weeks, right? You, you can, there is always time and price. And that's why Bitcoin, because it has such a constrained supply, you can say like, oh, wow, this is super overvalued. It's got to come down into a bear market. You're off by a couple of weeks. You're off by, you know, 2x on the price, right? Because those same thing in the stock market, like the Nasdaq went up like, what, 30% in the last year or something before the final crash. Some stocks double, tripled in that final year. So Bitcoin goes through its own cycles as well. And sometimes they align. Sometimes they will not perfectly align. And yeah, it's a... It can be an investment like any other, but the more you zoom out, the more you see the reason as to why Bitcoin is not going anywhere. I, if you trust the code, if you trust the decentralized nature, it's here to stay. And if it's here to stay, then the only scenario is the price has to rise. Otherwise, it can't succeed because of its finite nature of the number of Bitcoins in circulation. It's uh, really an ingenious design. Going back to the point about. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. modeling risk. I remember, you can correct me if I'm wrong, and you know, full disclosure, I don't track anywhere near, obviously, as close as you do. There was a juncture there, right, where, I think a few years ago, where there was this model, I think, called the stock to flow model that correlated pretty tightly, and that diverged to, and you know, this is what happens, right? The models come out, uh, more data comes in, and suddenly the model that everyone relied on, just like what the Federal relies on, ends up not being a true representation of what actually happens. On the having cycle point, that's often used as an argument for why price will, you know, from a sequencing perspective, continue to rise at least you know, during that period. I, I've got to assume that there's a possibility that, you know, the behavior on a having could look different compared to the past only because how many havings have there been, really been to sort of analyze? No, absolutely true. This is going to be having number four. We've already had three of them. And the markets never really repeat the same exact thing. They rhyme a little bit. But to me, the four-year halving cycle is that in a four-year cycle, Bitcoin manages to create a bull market and a bear market. They're not always going to top at, you know, on the same month or even in the same year within the four-year cycle necessarily. But so far, they've actually been pretty aligned. And it's really interesting whether this upcoming one is also going to align with the previous ones. Now, eventually, you know, will it be different this time? We'll find out. Now, as far as the stock to flow model goes, yes, and I've been critical of that model before it broke. And a lot of people didn't like me for being critical of that model because it was, I, I felt that it was too simple. And it was like when things are too simple and too obvious, I just didn't expect it to keep following that model. It was, they didn't expect it. And, but this is also the thing about trading and investing, right? You always end up second guessing yourself. The moment you think you found the perfect 
strategy, the moment you think everything is aligned, that's when it fails. And sometimes your most perfect trade will end up being a losing trade, while your not so perfect trades will end up being great. That's why you can never put everything on any given trade. It's just, you know, trading is a whole, it is a very interesting career choice. It really is. Yeah. So I, I would echo that sentiment. I mean, no matter what people say on FinTwit, FinX, whatever you want to call it nowadays, there is no clear link between effort and the value of your portfolio, right? When it comes to trading or investing at any moment in time, despite what people say. So as a career choice, just on that point, it's a career where there's no clear link between effort and results. Uh, There's a lot more randomness and luck than most people realize, which means you can supposedly be the most knowledgeable trade in the world, but still have, you know, shitty results. And that's why it's such a, a fascinating domain to focus on. But on that point about trading, uh, let's talk about trading versus investing when it comes to Bitcoin for yourself. Uh, you know, you describe yourself as a maxi. When I hear maxi, I, hear, I think of the word hodl. But you can still trade while being a believer in a particular theme. So do you have a portion of your portfolio that you just, you know, buy and hold, you don't touch? Do you trim? How do you think about sort of the interaction of, you know, belief in it and then maybe trading tactically around it? Oh, yeah. No, 100%. I'm a big believer in the whole strategy. Now, you have to weigh your other risk, whether even within the whole strategy, you could use something called a, a position trader where you're making a few trades a year. And if you do see that Bitcoin is potentially topping and you think it's going to enter a multi-month long bear cycle, you can lower your hold position only to come back. But again, you have to have another asset that you trust more than Bitcoin, even through the bear market. Now, I am a little more maxi than others. So I perhaps may not trust the dollar or anything else. And I would rather, you know, take that 20, 30% loss on a Bitcoin position, knowing that I would hold it through that bear market because I have confidence that it's going to come back higher. And every single person needs to decide what that is. Now, trading is completely different from investing. Now, my main expertise in trading is actually the options market on the NASDAQ 100 stocks. I mean, that's been, it has good enough volatility and I had strategies surrounding that. I had strategies that were directional with options, whether I'm uh, buying calls or buying puts, whether I'm doing spreads or like a back spread where I'm selling uh, a call, but using that money to buy three or four um, further out of the money calls because I think the stock is really going to go up. So if I was to be an active trader once again, which is difficult for me to do right now because I organize conferences, I have the YouTube channel, I do a lot of interviews, I'm a super public person, and it's very hard to concentrate on trading. So my short term and even swing trading is not really very active right now. If I was to go back to it, I would probably trade the assets that I'm most comfortable with in making the most amount of wealth. And I'm going to say wealth because then you convert that wealth into the asset that you trust the most long-term. For some, it's gold. For some, it's US dollars. And for someone like me, it's probably Bitcoin. So if I was to actively trade, yeah, I'd probably trade Bitcoin as well. But I would probably go back to my options trading of NASDAQ stocks. So trading is more like your job and your profession. Uh, while your investing is more 
or what you trust to grow over the long term. And some people don't trust Bitcoin like I do, but that's up to everyone to decide for themselves. I got to assume putting it together conferences is a tremendous pain in the ass. <laughs> so maybe I'm just curious, first of all, how many have you put together? How much effort do you put in? How many people are involved? I always think the, the process of putting a conference together is way underappreciated by the attendees. Yeah, it's actually challenging. So right now I have two, used to be three. <laughs> And both of the handles are in the space. The financial summit is listed as a speaker. Unconfiscatable is the other one. So as I mentioned, that unconfiscatable property. So that is the property that got me interested in Bitcoin to begin with. And this happened in 2013 when I was already getting, you know, mentally moving towards that anarcho-capitalist and libertarian view of thinking after following the Ron Paul campaign in 2012. And so I started watching channels like RT, which had lots of good financial shows. Max Kaiser was one of them. Capital Account was another one. And they kept mentioning Bitcoin, but it never resonated with me until 2013. In March of 2013 or April 2013, the Cyprus bank confiscation happened. Uh, that's when the European government and Cyprus government decided to confiscate 50% of everyone's wealth beyond $100,000 in a bank account. And that's when I, that scared me because I've been working on Wall Street for a while. I'm a saver. Uh, my personality is to save money. I had over $100,000 saved in my bank account. And I said, what? what do you mean the government can just take your money out of your bank account that you've earned? And that's how I ended up discovering Bitcoin. And that's how I realized that it's the only unconfiscatable asset that we can own. And a year later, I got the domain unconfiscatable.com. Someone reached out to me and said, hey, Tone, do you notice the domain is available for $12? Because I kept using the word, which is not even a real word. So I got the domain. I didn't know what to do with it. And I was attending and speaking at all these conferences. And I've always felt that most conferences, here's, the, here's the, something they don't tell you about conferences. More than 90% of any conference you attend you think that the people on stage are experts there to help you and educate you. That is not true. 90% of the people on stage are there to sell you something. And, right. the, only reason, right. Yeah. Right. and the only reason why they're there is because the organizer of the conference probably doesn't even care about the topic. They just want to make money. And whoever pays them the most money to come and speak to a group of people will get to speak to a group of people. And I really didn't like that. So I wanted to create a conference to educate people about Bitcoin where sponsors don't automatically get speaking gigs. And then also, I didn't want to sell anything. I just wanted to educate people. And that's how Unconfiscatable started as like a Bitcoin conference to educate about Bitcoin. And people on stage aren't just there to sell you anything. And then because of all of my workshops that I've done over the years, on teaching people technical analysis and risk analysis and helping people be responsible traders, I decided to start the Financial Summit, which is a five-day retreat for successful financial professionals, traders, money managers. And the goal is to connect young traders with people that can scale their trading ideas. And this is more like a retreat. It's five days. It's high end. It's a $9,000 event. So everyone there is successful. It's only for 50 people. And I love that event. Like I go there to learn. I go there to meet incredible people. And it's just like a five day vacation with people that just want to collaborate 
and make money in the markets. So I do these events because I super enjoy them and the people that I get to meet there. And they're not that profitable. And unless they start losing me a lot of money, I'm going to keep doing them because it's, it's a lot of fun. And also with my personality, yes, I quit my Wall Street job to be a trader. But then you realize that a trader's life is not that fun. You have this dream that you're sitting on a beach entering trades. That's not what it is. You're sitting in your room with five monitors, pretty stressed out. But the best part is you are your own boss and you make your own schedule. And I got to enjoy that kind of a lifestyle better by traveling the world and speaking. I grew up as an immigrant. I grew up pretty poor. I never really traveled until my mid to late 30s. That's when I finally started. I've now been to 40, 50 countries, but I've done all of that like after the age of 35. And I really enjoyed it. And you know what? Trading will always be there. It's not going to change. It was the same when I learned it over 20 years ago. And it'll be the same 10, 15 years from now when I'm ready to retire. And I don't want to, you know, enjoy life as much. I just found life more enjoyable by traveling and speaking and teaching trading as I did that than actually sitting at home from a bunch of monitors, which is not going to go anywhere. And I'll always go back. And I can always go back to that. So for those who want to track more of your work or maybe attend some of your conferences, where would you point them to? Sure. I mean, you can just follow me on Twitter. My brand is just tone base. And you see the financial summit handle here listening, also unconfiscatable handle. So please follow those as well. I mean, they have information about the events. Financial summit is coming up in Dubai. That one moves around the world. Very high-end villa-style resorts. The next one is in Dubai. The last one was in Bali. The one before that was in Dominican Republic. And unconfiscatable is always in Las Vegas because it has a poker tournament. That's another one of my hobbies, playing poker. I don't play professionally. I don't play at casinos, but I love getting together with friends and house poker games. And we have a poker tournament fully denominated in Bitcoin. The entry fees denominated in Bitcoin and all the payouts are denominated in Bitcoin. And that's going to be in Las Vegas on December 6th. Financial Summit will be on November 5th to 10th in Dubai. So anyone interested, come join us. These events are incredibly fun because they're, they weren't created with a profit motive onto the people that attend. They're really there to educate. So yeah, good place to wrap this space up. Everybody, please make sure you follow Tone, subscribe to his YouTube channel, and I will see you all, I hope, at least your avatars, your pictures here on X next week. Thank you, Tone, for the last minute on this, and hopefully everybody enjoyed the conversation. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.